Welcome back to the Dental Bright Bites podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Kidd, and today I'm interviewing Levy Barlavi, a local Los Angeles lawyer who's helping us navigate the ins and outs and the legal pitfalls involved in starting a practice or maybe buying into a practice. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Levy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. <laughs> so talking about some legal stuff today, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, let's dive right in and get into the, the young doctor that's listening or maybe even a doctor that's buying another practice. Uh, what steps should they take for, for buying a practice from beginning to end? What are the legal steps that they should take? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, just to give you a little background, I'm a dental attorney, so uh, I've done this for about 10 years, helping doctors and uh, dentists, mostly assisting them with the purchase and sale of their practices. Um, for young doctors starting out, I think the first thing that they should know is that the process takes a long time. Um, it could take quite a bit of uh, time to locate a practice you like, put in an offer, have that offer get accepted, and then um, get the financing, have the parties agree on the deal, get the lease transferred over to you, and then become an owner. <clears throat> so what I tell uh, young associates is, you know, if you are in a situation where you don't like your current employer, you know, don't think you're just going to jump ship and buy a practice in a month. Um, you're going to put yourself in a really bad situation. So take some time, be out there on the market looking um, uh, at least, you know, six months before you think you want to become an owner to see what's out there and familiar, familiarize yourself with the kind of practices that are on, on offer. Okay. Um, you know, after that, really, once you, once you're ready to buy a practice, there's, there's a few different players in your team that you should be aware of. Um, you should have one, a good CPA or consultant who's gonna walk you through the steps of uh, doing the due diligence on the practice and understanding, uh, looking at the ins and outs of the financials and giving you a perspective in terms of what it is you're buying. Uh, two, you want to have a relationship with a healthcare lender. Um, there's a there's a quite a bit of them here in uh, Southern California um, and nationally that assist doctors exclusively with purchasing practices, and they're going to provide your financing. And so, you're going to want to have a relationship with the lender who's going to help you with the financing once you make an offer. Uh, three, I would, uh, I'm biased here, but I think you need a good attorney on your side, <laughs> specifically someone who's in the dental industry who understands the different players, the mechanisms, the brokers, um, the parties involved in the deal, and also the language um, involved in the transaction. And so I would say, you know, when you're looking to buy a practice, it's good to start to assemble your team early um, before you jump in. Great. So typically people are bringing you on before they've found the space? Well, typically I'm talking to doctor before they find the space, um, but mm -hmm. sometimes 
that get referred to me um, after they put in the LOI. And so gotcha. I'll talk to you a little bit about how the, how the transition goes. Once you find a practice you like, usually it's, there's a broker involved on the seller side. That broker will give you an offer sheet. Sometimes it's called the letter of intent. Sometimes it's called a depositor agreement. And that agreement will outline what you're buying, how much you're paying, when the closing will be, um, and a few different steps that are going to take place before you uh, become the owner. Typically, that's where I come in to help the uh, buyer uh, review the LOI and explain to them kind of what steps uh, are going to be taken and making sure that their deposit is refundable um, mm -hmm. either before the contingencies run out or even afterwards. So that's a mistake that a lot of people probably make then. Yeah, they, they sign the LOI. They don't appreciate, um, you know, the fact that they're putting in a deposit and that there's contingencies and they're unaware of these dates and they kind of blow past them. And that's the first kind of pitfall is, you know, you, you put in a deposit agreement and don't understand the time frame and how quick things evolve and, and just quickly there's about four steps after you put in the LOI before you buy the practice. Step one is to do your due diligence. Typically, you do that with a consultant. Step two is to get your financing in order. You do that with the bank. Step three is to negotiate an asset purchase agreement with the seller. You do that with your attorney. And then step four is to review the seller's lease and make sure you become familiar with it, make sure there's no owner's provisions, and then go through the process of getting accepted as a tenant for that building, and then either having that lease transferred over to you as a new practice owner, or getting a new lease with the landlord. After you completed those four steps, which typically takes 30 to 60 days, then you become a practice owner. What documents pop up in that process that they should have you involved in? Sure. The, the most important one uh, is the asset sale agreement. This is the document that outlines what is it that the parties are engaging in here. Um, the buyer is buying the assets of the dental practice. Usually the dental practice is owned by a corporation, the seller's corporation. You're not buying the stock of that seller. You're buying his or her assets. That includes all the furniture, fixtures, equipment, the goodwill, the supplies, uh, intellectual property, telephone numbers, websites. Basically, all the assets of the practice are coming into your possession. The asset sale agreement outlines what it is you're buying, how much you're paying for, but most importantly, what are the obligations of the seller and the buyer to each other before the closing, during the closing, and after the closing. And that's really where some of the liability um, gets transferred to the buyer, between the buyer and seller, um, depending on how you draft those provisions. You know, how, what, how, what is a seller representing to you as a buyer in terms of what it is that is being sold? Those representations are very important. Uh, one is a part of your due diligence to make sure that the seller has 
you know, properly maintain the equipment? Uh, does it have any lawsuits out? Uh, does it own any practices mm. that they haven't told you about? Hasn't transferred any of the patients to another practice before the closing? A good buyer's attorney will assist their client by putting in and modifying the language to put the seller basically in a position to either attest to those facts or say, oh, I can't. And that gives the buyer the wherewithal to understand what it is that the seller has done with this practice. Um, similarly, what happens during the closing with the, with the employees? Um, what are the post-closing obligations? The seller, you know, a, a dental practice has a lot of moving parts. There's employees, yeah. front office staff, back office staff. <clears throat> there's patients coming in and out. Some of those patients haven't finished their treatment. How is it handled um, when the seller has a bunch of unfinished treatment? Is the buyer handling that? Is the seller handling that? Um, typically, hmm. we want the seller to finish his or her treatment to yeah. um, pr protect the buyer from liability. And then what if the seller did some poor work in the practice? Um, you need provisions in the agreement that's going to uh, dictate what happens um, if there's a patient who comes in after the sale and says, you know what, the seller's, um, the crown that they put on doesn't fit right, doesn't feel right. The seller should have the obligation to come in and repair that work. Really? For how long does that typically go on? You know, the, the type of warranty that the seller agrees to is, it, it, it depends it's on individual. the type of situation, individual. Gotcha. Uh, typically, you see six months to a year after the sale. Okay. Um, and the, the seller will kind of warrant that if the patient comes in with a complaint and it is uh, reasonable, that the seller will come in and do the work and take care of that at no cost to the buyer. Gotcha. And again, this is, you know, these these type of provisions are there to kind of guide the parties in worst case scenarios. If mm -hmm. the if the if the parties aren't getting along, the contract is there to hold their feet to the fire. You know, uh, I say sometimes buyers are uh, smart to even if there's a retreatment clause in the contract that requires that the seller perform the treatment. Sometimes you know practically buyers are smart to just take care of that treatment and maybe eat the cost and win the goodwill of that patient. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm thinking to myself as you're saying all this, I know some doctors that I work with have used like a family lawyer that they've had their whole lives or right. maybe it's an uncle, a father, whatever. Right, right. Um, and I'm thinking that like a normal business lawyer wouldn't understand or maybe, but I guess that's a generalization, but it just sounds to me like you really need someone that's dental specific to understand some of this legality. Yeah, um, well, definitely, you know, your, your cousin that's a personal injury attorney is not going to be the right person <laughs> to help you out with the, yeah. with the contract. Um, even I some just feel like attorneys. I hear that a lot. People yeah. are using family members that are in law. Yeah, yeah. Same yeah. thing Especially, with CPAs, and that always makes me cringe. Yeah, you know, the, the, you know, the benefit of kind of how things have, you know, more and more professionals are getting more specialized. And I think that ultimately that's better for uh, the doctors. So you have CPAs out there who only deal with dentists. And mm -hmm. I often get asked the question, you know, what's, what's a, what is a dental attorney going to do? Or what is a dental CPA going to do that my cousin who's an attorney or my uncle who's a CPA can't? 
Well, you know, the truth is that those other professionals can handle, you know, about 80-90% of um, what I would do or what a CPA does. But the benefit of having someone who's in the industry is that 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 15-20%, which can be very important in terms of knowing, you know, these type of representations or how to handle retreatments or uncompleted dental treatment, or for a dental CPA who is able to kind of know the ins and outs of a dental practice and can talk to a doctor about how much their overhead is compared to other practices in Southern California. That type of knowledge sure. is really helpful in terms of, um, you know, passing it on to your client or just knowing other people in the industry that the client can help with. So, you know, when I work with all of the banks, if there's a hiccup, you know, because I have a relationship with the banks, um, I can more easily access those relationships to assist my client through the transaction. Yeah. Now I want to get into a little bit, um, some legal issues that buyers might be concerned about. Um, I know you mentioned a few, uh, but what are, what are you seeing that dentists are buying practices that it might come back to bite them or something that they should just keep an eye out for when they're looking into buying a practice? Sure. Um, typically what I see is that um, buyers who don't really do their due diligence when they buy the practice uh, or don't use an attorney or get a contract off the web or a contract from the broker and just assume that uh, the language in the contracts are standard and mm. don't really pay attention to them. Uh, those are typically buyers. And I just put that in, uh, in the, basically the unprepared buyer category. Gotcha. Um, I've had, I've had uh, really horror, horror stories where buyers have um, purchased a practice, didn't use an attorney, or they used a contract between themselves and <clears throat> the covenants not to compete in that contract, which is ultimately what protects a buyer um, from having the seller open up a practice a mile away and just start <laughs> advertising to those face. patients and take them away. Yeah. Those, those covenants either aren't well drafted or the parties in the top of the contract um, aren't fleshed out. And so you might have the seller's corporation, but the seller will just close down that corporation and work in, under a different corporation or as, mm. a, as an individual. Now, how, how well does that hold up in California? Uh, very well. In California, okay. there is a there is a law. It's part of the Business and Professions Code section that states that um, you can't prohibit someone's ability to compete in employment. So that's okay. the general rule. But like every rule, there's caveats to that. And the main caveat is the main exception is that when you are purchasing a business from a seller, regardless of what type of business it is. When you're purchasing a business from a seller and you're purchasing their goodwill, the parties can contract to have a reasonable covenant not to compete so that the seller does not uh, open up a like business in a geographic area and basically take the goodwill and the patients or the customers mm. that were sold to that buyer. So the covenant not to compete in this situation is perfectly permissible. 
In an employment context where an associate is working for a practice, not as much. Gotcha. And if that happens, typically are they finding that uh, if you like take it to court, that the doctor that maybe sold the practice and then opened another one and is creating that competition that they agreed would not happen, that they're paying a percentage back to the doctor? I'm just curious. The damages, um, the damages can either be stipulated in the agreement between the parties, so they can have damages stipulated that if the doctor violates this clause, what those damages might be. Um, but more than likely, um, the buyer would go to court and get a restraining order on the seller to prevent them, prevent them from continuing the business or taking the patient. And then it would have to go into uh, proving the damages. Um, wow. Uh, uh, and, and the damages can be great. Wow. That sounds like a headache. <laughs> yeah. Definitely not something you want to get involved in. You know, most of the time, ninety part, I would say 95% of the sellers um, and buyers, you know, listen, they're, they're doctors, they're, they're, they're colleagues, they want to work well together. They're not malicious. Um, and they're not trying to take advantage of each other. Really, these agreements are an insurance policy against uh, either doctors who um, are malicious or, mm-hmm. um, or if you just find yourself in a situation where, you know, because of all the moving parts in the practice, you haven't set forth the rules by which you're going to govern yourself after the sale, you have the contract to fall back on to resolve uh, these situations and, and they happen frequently. Um, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, now last question for you, instead of just, uh, straight up buying a practice, I have a lot of situations where associates then buy into a practice yeah. in that situation. Um, I'm assuming they should be getting you involved, um, to have someone, yeah. both the person buying in and also the person that owns the practice that's selling a piece of their practice, a, a partnership. Yeah. Um, I don't always feel like people get lawyers involved in that situation. Uh, you know, why should they and, and what happens if they potentially don't? Yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. First of all, this is the type of situation that could be fantastic for an associate and for the senior partner. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have a transition where the associate who's worked in the practice for a few year, few years ends up buying in, one, the selling uh, doctor, the senior partner, can kind of slowly transition so it doesn't have to be a clean break, which they like frequently. And two, for the associate, they get to um, buy into practice and there's just a smooth transition so there's a lot less patient attrition in those type of deals. But yeah. it's really important to get parties involved, um, attorneys involved, because at the end of the day, once you buy into a practice, um, you, be, you know, you guys, you guys are basically marrying each other in a business relationship. And mm-hmm. so there can be a lot of problems in terms of the promises that were made to the, to the uh, buying doctor, the minority owner, in terms of when the seller was going to leave, what kind of control the buyer would have in the practice once they became a partner. And unless you have a clear partnership agreement that dictates 
you know, when is the second stage of the sale going to be? When is the seller going to retire? When is the senior partner going to retire? How is the practice going to be managed when the buyer comes in, when the associate comes in as a minority owner? You know, a lot of times um, the senior owner has an idea and it has that they would bring on a junior partner, but they're still going to control the practice and the junior partner is basically going to have an equity stake but have no say. And that's not going to necessarily align with what the associate believes when they have yeah. put in a significant amount of money to become mm -hmm. an owner. They're going to want to include, you know, their voice and say and how things are managed. And so sure. those can be really tricky conversations to have and um, even trickier if the parties don't kind of come together, have a meeting of the minds, you know, outline that in a clear partnership agreement. And so that will just give you the platform to have a very good working relationship after. Plus, that partnership agreement dictates what happens to the parties if there's a dispute, if one of them want to withdraw, if they find out that this just isn't working for them. They'll have clear guidelines in terms of how the subsequent sale occurs. And that's going to save the parties a lot of money and, and angst. Uh, especially if they don't have that and it ends up in litigation. And should both parties be using the same lawyer to do this or should they each have their own individual lawyer? I, I, I believe they should each have their own individual lawyer. I know there's some attorneys that do partnerships um, for, uh, for, you know, joint partners. I, you know, I think that's the rare exception where the parties, um, either have known each other for a significant amount of time. Um, yeah. But if it is, if it is, it, it, I think it's always best if the attorneys, there's an attorney for the seller and the buyer, and they can uh, each be represented. Otherwise, the attorney representing both parties uh, can't zealously advocate for one party or another. They're just kind of giving you the options and letting the parties decide in terms of the drafting. Great. Awesome information. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Very appreciated. This is very cool what you're doing. <laughs> and that's a wrap for this episode of the Dental Bright Bites podcast. Thank you so much to Levy for coming onto the podcast today. I will include all of his contact information in the show notes if you wish to reach out to him. And before you leave, if you could leave us a review or better yet, share us with one of your dental friends, we'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much and stay tuned for the next episode.